If you are able, uh, would you please stand with me as we read our gospel text this morning? Just a warning, it's a long one, so if you need to sit down, that's okay. Our reading this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 37. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people them to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to those who lived long ago, do not commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out until you've paid the very last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body go into hell. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those who lived long ago, do not make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it is God's throne. You must not pledge by earth because it is God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some words of the Lord are easier to say thanks be to God to than others. Jesus is moving into a portion of the Sermon on the Mount here that, that really gets into the stuff that starts to make us feel uncomfortable. I, I reckon it's the same stuff that began to make his initial audience, the disciples and the crowds who had gathered in Galilee that day, equally uncomfortable. Uh, Jesus comes along, and, and so far he's given us some great stuff. He's talked about how, how those who are blessed in the kingdom of God are oftentimes the people we don't consider blessed. In fact, those who are blessed in the kingdom of God might be actually us. And, and he has talked about how, how the people of God called into God's kingdom are salt and light to the world, and they give light and flavor to the earth around them, which is wonderful and great and good news. But here Jesus turns a corner, if you will. 
and begins to speak in more concrete terms about what it means to be a person of the kingdom of God. Jesus being aware, perhaps, of what people might be thinking about him, Jesus perhaps being aware of what might be said about him in the future, begins to talk about how he has not come to do away with the law that came before. He basically comes on the scene and says, I'm not here to change what came before. I am not here to throw out what came before. Rather, he says, I have come to fulfill what came before. Think about it in this sort of way. The law was put in place. The law of Moses was put in place so that the people could live into what it meant to be the people of God. And when God would come in God's kingdom in full consummation, everything would be as it should be. Then the law would be fulfilled. What Jesus is claiming is quite amazing here. He's basically saying that the, the, the fulfillment of the law, sort of the end of God's um, salvation history, the end of what God has been kind of building to throughout history is coming to its fullness and its fulfillment in his own person, which makes Jesus the faithful interpreter of the law. The one who comes and says, this is what the law is and what it means. Now, Jesus is careful to say, I will not get rid of it. In fact, if anyone desires to move one jot or tittle, one little dot of the I or cross the T, that's not cool. That's what Jesus says. He says, that's not what I'm about, but I'm about telling you what is more, what is fulfilled, what is even greater. In fact, the point that Jesus makes is quite stunning when he says, I tell you the truth that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. We ought to pause a moment to consider the import and the weight of that statement. We are perhaps conditioned by many years of Christian history and perhaps by the gospel writers themselves to kind of boo and hiss when we hear Pharisees and scribes. Right, if this were a silent movie, we'd hear the score of the villain. Right, if this were Star Wars, when we hear Pharisees, we'd hear the Imperial March. Some of you will get that, some of you won't, that's okay. We're, we're sort of conditioned to, to see the scribes and the Pharisees sort of in, in a largely negative light. It's so much so that we say, well, they're the ones who, you know, they were just about rules and not about really living into God's kingdom. And, and I think that's an unfair characterization of them, historically speaking. In fact, when Jesus mentions the scribes and the Pharisees, he doesn't say anything negative about them here. What it seems that he is trying to say is, you see these people who are the holiness people who are trying to be scrupulously holy unto God, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you have no place in the kingdom of God. It was not a negative statement to say they're bad, do better. It was a statement which seems to imply, you see how holy and how closely they keep the law? The people of God and the kingdom of God are called to actually do more than that. And so perhaps a little bit of information about the Pharisees in particular might be helpful. They were what I would call the holiness people of their day. We are from the holiness tradition, by the way, that intentionally making that comparison. But they saw the law and they said, we need to follow the law. We need to make sure that we are doing everything we can to faithfully keep this law that God has given so that we might be holy and pleasing unto God. And so they did things like say, okay, we're supposed to tithe 10% or whatever the, the tithe was that day. And they said, well, well, what does the tithe apply to? Right? Is it gross or net income? They would have asked that question. What about non-monetary things? What if I got 10 chickens? What's my tithe? What is my tithe on, on the, the harvest of mint and cumin? 
Do I tithe by grains, by net, by gross, by weight, what? And they would figure that out, and they'd say that. They'd say things like, okay, you're not supposed to sow on the Sabbath day, so you can chew on a clove for breath-freshening purposes, but if you spit it out, that's technically sowing, so we can't do that on the Sabbath day. So we chew it and we swallow it. That's gross if you've ever chewed and swallowed a clove. But on other days, you can spit it out. And we look at that and we laugh, and it's sort of funny. But their intention was not to be funny or to be so fastidious as to be onerous. Their their intention was to say, we want to faithfully live by what God has commanded us to live. And we want to make sure that we are not stepping out of bounds in any sort of way. So we are going to micromanage what it looks like to follow the law. At the very least, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees weren't seen as bad. They were the holiest of holy. They were the ones who were going out of their way to follow the law of God. And, and so when Jesus comes on the scene and says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no part in the kingdom of the God, the people are like, what? They're holy people. What do we have to do? This was a weight. This was big. This was thunderous. I mean, how much more faithfully could you keep the law? I have to admit, I would make a good Pharisee. And then the reason I admit that is because I like very, 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 very clear expectations. Right? If I get, if I get money, I want to know, God, do you want me to tithe on my gross or on my net? I want to know because I want to do the right thing, Right? I love clear expectations, not just in religion. This is like everywhere in my life. I succeed and do well under clear expectations. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I took a class. um, I think it was my sophomore. It might have been my junior year. Uh, This class was called the Literature of Existentialism. I was going for a philosophy minor, and I thought it'd be fun to mix my love of literature with my love of arguing, which is the literature of philosophy. And so we're in this class, and, and it's interesting. We're, we're reading Jean-Paul Sartre. We're reading Albert Camus. Their literature is fascinating, by the way. You should read it just for fun. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, like all sorts of just wonderful philosophers and thinkers and writers. It was a wonderful class. I really enjoyed it. Uh, my teacher, Dr. Crawford, I mean, just knew everything. He was, like, smart. Um, and he was a good baseball player, too. He got drafted by the Yankees when he was younger. That's apropos of nothing. I just wanted to mention that. Just shout out to Dr. Crawford. Um, but, but anyway, we're, we're coming down to it, and we're coming down to the first paper of the class. I've always considered myself a fairly good writer. I, I like to write. I think it's easy for me to write, especially about literature and philosophy, because I can argue. I'm good at that. So uh, the time of the paper comes up, and I'm noticing that there's nothing in the syllabus about like expectations about this paper. Nothing. Right? So it basically says, read Fear and Trembling and write a paper. Okay. Great. Um, kind of waiting, kind of waiting, waiting for some sort of rubric, some sort of grading, page limit, word limit. I mean, these are things that us who like expectations really, really crave. Us who are rule followers really, really crave these things because we want to make sure we do it right. So the week before the paper is due, nothing, right? It was a once a week class. I remember it was in a small room, Thursday nights, I think. So I went, I said, Dr. Crawford, um, I just have a little couple questions about the paper. Shoot, he says, yes, okay. How long does it need to be? It's a good place to start because professors, I mean, if you've ever read 10, you know, like 15-page papers, that's a lot of work. And so, you know, sometimes it's, oh, you have to keep it concise, you know, five pages or they want the magnum opus, right, 4,500 words, whatever. He says, well, just make it as long as it needs to be. Okay, 
warning sign one, if you love a rule follower, don't say just as long as it needs to be because you want to know how long does it need to be. It's not subjective. It should have a word limit. Okay. All right, so this is, okay. All right, I can do uh, that. I can put my mind around, so I guess I can go shorter or longer depending on what you need, right? Um, okay, Dr. Crawford, could you just tell me a little bit about like what you're looking for in the paper? What, what do you want me to address? Do you want me to address kind of the philosophical understandings that Soren Kierkegaard talks about in Fear and Trembling? Do you want me to talk about the biblical stuff? Because I can do that, right? He's talking about Abraham. What do you want me to write about? And he looks and kind of says, well, whatever you want to write about. I didn't, I don't even, I can't remember if I did well in that class, but it was very, very frustrating for me. Because not only did he not tell me what I needed to write about, when it came time for the paper to come back, right? It was wonderful, you got a nice grade on it, but no comment whatsoever. Nothing. So if you're like me and go, okay, well, I'll write this first paper, and then he'll tell me what, like, I did wrong, and then for the next seven or eight papers that were due for that class, I can know what I need to write. Right? Yes. It's the subversion rule following. Nothing. Not a comment, just a letter grade. To this day, I don't know if I, like, what I did well in the class and what I didn't. What I like is a professor who reads your paper so carefully that he or she makes comments on your footnotes. Again, rule follower. Um, best comment I ever got was telling me I used a footnote correctly. Because I knew. I now know how to do this. Like, I've met expectations. I would make a good Pharisee. Because I want to know should I tithe on the mint and the cumin? And, and quite frankly, people in general, we make good Pharisees because we want to know expectations. We want to either hold ourselves accountable or more likely hold other people accountable as well. We want clear expectations on what we can do and also what we can't do. That's kind of a human nature thing. Now, now some of us are a little bit more rebellious and can work outside of those. I am unfortunately not one of those people I want to know. I want to know what's expected of me, and I want to know what's expected of you so that I can hold you accountable, I can hold me accountable, you can hold me accountable. Because if we're all working with the same expectations, the same rules, then we're all kind of playing on the same field, so to speak. If you want some insight into how my mind works, you just got like the four or five minute version of it. I know some of you don't work that way and you don't understand me. That's fine. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. So what Jesus is saying, though, is that what it means to be great in the kingdom of God means we have to somehow go beyond that, the Pharisee in us. And I use Pharisee sort of positively in that extent. That, that desire to have rules, have expectations, to know exactly what we can do and what we can't do, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. We want someone to tell us, you can go this far, but no further. We like to have that expectation, even if we tend to blow past the expectation. But what Jesus begins to develop in these following verses is something a little bit different than the do's or the don'ts. Remember what Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish or to get rid of the law of the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. I am their fulfillment, their faithful interpreter of. And so he begins to to tell some examples of what this means. He, He begins by talking about murder. I think, and that's a good place to start, because all of us in here can agree, murder is bad, right? We can get into definitions. Some people say, well, you know, the Ten Commandments say murder, not kill. We could talk about that. But we can all pretty much agree that murder is wrong. Killing another person intentionally for no reason or a bad reason is wrong. Yes? Yes. Okay, good. I I thought we could find some common ground there. 
So Jesus says, we can all agree. You've heard it said. In the, in, in the Big Ten, it says, you shall not murder. But when Jesus talks about higher righteousness, he says, but I say to you, it's not just about murder. Murder may be the act, but what's in the heart behind the act? Anger, jealousy, rage, whatever, lots of different things. And so he says, but I say, any, anyone who calls your brother or sister idiot or fool is in danger. And we begin to go, ooh, that's a little harder, isn't it? Because at what point does my anger become righteous anger or unrighteous anger? I've called people in my lives fool. People cut me off in traffic and I say things sometimes. I suspect you do too. My pet peeve is when I'm running and somebody tries to hit me when I'm in a crosswalk. Things go through my mind at those moments. Which make me sometimes wonder if I have lived into this higher righteousness that Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't saying that, that, oh, you can just blow past that don't murder thing. He's saying, no, you have to do better than simply not killing someone when you're angry. Essentially what Jesus is saying, it's easy not to kill someone when you're angry. He's saying it's much, much harder to have a heart that responds differently when you are angered. Yes, it may be fairly easy not to kill someone when you are angry. It's much harder not to be angry in the first place. Not to respond in anger. Not to be enraged. Not to stew on it for 45 days afterwards. Some of us are like that. I have a long memory. I have been like that in my past, sometimes in my present. I remember and get angry at something done by someone I may not even have known. It's much harder to have a heart that says, I can let anger go. But Jesus says this righteousness of the kingdom of God is something, it's not a matter of don't just not pull the trigger, but allow your heart to be formed and transformed so that you don't want to pull the trigger or call the fool or whatever else might be. We begin to see what this higher righteousness is, what this surpassing goodness is, what, what this thing that God is calling us to for this kingdom is, and it's much, much more difficult. Actions are hard enough to control. Intentions are much more difficult to change. But what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is a reconciling community. That is... We seek to reconcile when we have differences, which is why Jesus says if you bring your gift to the altar and realize that someone has something against you, has, has either sinned against you or you have sinned against them, leave your gift there and go and be reconciled. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is saying this in Galilee. He's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's telling people, if you're down in Jerusalem and you remember someone in Galilee has something against you, leave, travel these, I can't remember how long it is, but it's a couple days journey on foot. All the way back, be reconciled, and then you can come back and present your gift at the altar. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is to be a reconciling community. Where reconciliation is important. Not just don't kill, not just don't murder, but actively reconcile with the people who have sinned against you or whom you may have sinned against. This is much different in scale and in scope than simply not killing another person when they have wronged you. So then Jesus goes to a different example. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Again, we can all pretty much agree that that's probably not a good thing. That's something against the designs of God. 
But Jesus says, but I tell you, if a man looks at a woman and intends to commit that act or dreams about that act, whatever it might be, they have committed adultery in their heart. Again, Jesus is saying, it's not simply about the act. The act is not what is wrong here. Now, you shouldn't do the act, but, but it's what the formation of the heart that really matters. So don't think that just by not doing it, you're doing anything particularly wonderful. Because your heart desires it. And so Jesus says, don't do that. In, in fact, he says, if parts of your body are causing you to sin, gouge them out or cut them off. This has been interpreted quite literally in church history. There is a bishop who quite literally took this to heart and cut off parts of his body. I'm not entirely sure that's what Jesus is going for. After all, my hand does not operate independently of my brain. My hand does not operate independently of my heart. Can't really gouge my heart out without dying. But what Jesus is saying is, this is not simply to be a, a, a community where we, where we don't betray our spouses or, or the, our neighbors by committing adultery. He's saying we are to be a community that sees another person not as simply the object of our lust or of our desire, but rather as persons. That's a much harder thing to do. We shouldn't congratulate ourselves just because we don't go through the act. It's a good place to start. But what Jesus is saying is, it's about the inside, the heart, the formation of of who we are as people, as character, about the community that we are trying to build. And this goes all the way, you know, from lust to to even into divorce. And this is the the context of this divorce language, right? In in Jesus' day, even in the Jewish community, all you needed to divorce your wife, it didn't go the other way, by the way, and that's important here, was just a certificate that says, I want to divorce my wife, and you needed a couple of witnesses, and it was done for whatever reason. In Luke, Jesus says, you have heard it said that you can divorce your wife for any other reason, any reason. But Jesus says, but to do so just flippantly, without good reason, i.e. in this particular instance, unfaithfulness, he says, you're letting her go and forcing her to commit adultery because you may have signed the, the thing, but God didn't. Now, we could all get into divorce. This would be a, a sermon unto itself. I'm not going to go completely there today. Suffice it to say, a divorced woman had little other recourse than to be married again in the Jewish culture. Why? Because they were not financially independent. The women who were financially independent were doing things that were not morally acceptable. And that's horrible and terrible, but that was the reality of the day. So Jesus' implication that a divorced woman should stay divorced and not remarried was essentially saying, guess what? There has to be a community that will support these people when this happens so that they don't have to be forced to run to a man for their financial and social security. Better yet, just don't divorce in the first place. Kind of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is looking at the formation of the heart. Again, we could get into divorce and talk about that. But what Jesus is looking for, he's looking for formation of the heart whereby people see each other differently. Where I see the person whom I am married to not simply as chattel to be disposed of whenever she displeases me. Quite frankly, it probably goes the other way more often, right? I'm glad that she can't just get rid of me. Where we see each other differently, not as property, but as people. 
Not as just someone to fulfill my needs, but rather as a person who is independent, beloved, made in the image of God. All this has to do with Jesus saying, the act is easy. Following the rule is easy. Allowing our hearts to be transformed so that we see people in situations differently, well, that's much, much harder. That is higher righteousness, so to speak. And then Jesus goes into the taking of oaths, right? Saying, you've heard it said, you should swear an oath, right? You should keep the oaths that you make. I mean, I'm, I'm all for that, right? If you make an oath, keep that oath. But Jesus attacks the very need for, for oath-taking in the first place. The fact that I am asked at certain times to swear that I am telling the truth implies that there are times when I wouldn't if I hadn't sworn to it. So me taking an oath and swearing that I'll tell the truth and actually telling the truth should not be surprising. That should not be a surprising ethical move, as surprising as it is for us as we see around us. It should not be surprising. In fact, what Jesus says is, wouldn't it be better just to be truthful all the time? Imagine this. If you went through life and every person you met, you could believe they were telling the truth. Imagine what this world would be like if every person we met, everything we said, they knew we were telling the truth, not because we swore on it, not because we had a Bible in our hands, but simply because our yes was yes and our no was no. Imagine what our world would be like if we were formed in that way. And so what is Jesus saying? Right? Is he making a new law, don't take oaths? Or is he saying, be a people who can be trusted. Be a people who are truthful at all times regardless Radical truthfulness. Sometimes great, sometimes uncomfortable. But it's always nice to know when a person speaks that they are saying what they truly think or believe. Now here comes some of the problem with this particular passage of scripture. What good Pharisees like myself like to do with it is make new rules. Right? I mean, if you're, not, if you're not like me, that's okay if you disagree. But, but that's how I read this. I read this and go, okay, now I have this whole new list, this expanded list of rules for myself. Right? So, so, so now not only can I not commit adultery, but I can't do this litany of things. And if I do this thing, I have to do this. Right? I have to gouge out my eye. That scared me to death as a child. Because I take things very, very literally. And I like rules. Always have. I am 99% sure that's not what Jesus is going for here. Unless your righteous succeeds, the scribes and the Pharisees, not unless you make more rules than them. Jesus is talking about a righteousness that, that looks different. A, a righteousness that sees situation doesn't say, well, what does the law say? But rather says, what does God say? How does God want me to react in this particular situation? We might call it, um, instead of heart of stone, heart of flesh. Instead of a... Rules written on tablets of stone. It's the law of God written on our hearts. We, we might use that kind of language because what Jesus isn't going for is more rules. Jesus doesn't want more rules. Jesus wants a people whose hearts are formed after God's own heart. A simple analysis of this passage of scripture would say that more than likely Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. Right? I don't think Jesus really wants us to cut off our hands because Jesus knows that it's not the hand that causes me to sin, it's the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the body acts. What Jesus is saying is, I want to see your hearts transformed. This is what Jeremiah talked about, hearts of flesh. The, the law written on our hearts, not written on stone. 
what Jesus is looking for is not for you to follow more rules or make more rules or feel beholden to more rules, but rather to see situations and ask not what am I allowed to do or what can I not do here, but say what should I do? What does love call me to do in this particular situation? Because a list of rules is easy to just check off. I didn't do that and I did do that. And, and sometimes I wish the kingdom of God were that easy. Because again, I'm a good rule follower, at least in that respect. But Jesus calls us to something different, right? Higher righteousness. Righteousness that surpasses the making of lists of rules, but rather having a heart formed by the character of God and the kingdom in which we live so that we might act out of ways that God would have us act or that God would act. And so this takes different forms in different times and different places. Again, I, I used to worry, am I really allowed to swear to tell the truth in a court of law? I think that's okay. But wouldn't it be great if we all went into courts of law and we swore in the Bible and the people around us who knew us said, they don't need to do that. They're just going to tell the truth anyway. Right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because God is a God of truth, not of deception. Let me tell you where I've, I've kind of met this. Uh, I, I thought of this, oddly enough, in the showers. I was getting ready this morning. I, I, I was um, at Northwest Nazarene University this past summer for a, a trustee's, uh, kind of we were doing strategic planning retreat. And I'm biased, so just know that because I love NNU and it's my alma mater, a great place, and I believe in the mission. But their response to, to kind of the COVID situation has been very interesting because they're not kind of just doing the minimum that is required by the state. They have this whole wonderful community first plan. And I, and I saw this in action as I was there because it was August. It was kind of before Delta had surged and everyone went back to wearing masks inside. We were kind of, you know, we were reveling in what it could be to be vaccinated, right? All that wonderful fun stuff, this optimism we had this summer, right? So we were all there gathered together. Um, some were wearing masks, some weren't. It was okay. And, and we had a time where we were gathering together in small groups. So we, you know, divided into small groups, gathered around a table, you know, six or eight of us, right? Closer than six feet. I was wearing a mask because you, you probably get this about me by now. I'm a little hypersensitive to all of this, right? Y'all know that about me. I tried not to make any, you know, like any falsehood about that. So I was the only one at the table wearing a mask. I was okay with that at that time, right? I, Right? This is my decision. You don't have to wear one. No one's asked you to wear one. Right? It's not a mandate even in the state. But there was one person at the table who happens to be one of the, the VPs of the, of the institution. And he asked me, do you want us all to wear masks at the table? And I was kind of like I'm surprised he would ask me that because you know, it's not required. I'm doing this for me. And he just said, this is part of our community first plan, where, where we feel that if, if you want us to, we will for your sake. Right? So he basically looked at me and said, if you feel nervous about this, we'll do it. We'll mask up. It's not a problem. Right? So whatever you feel about masking, let's just put that out of the equation for now. But, but in that very moment, I was sitting there, and not because they had to or because the law told them they were supposed to, someone at that table says, what are you comfortable with? around this table? Do you want us to put masks on? To me, that is going beyond the minimum. Right? The the minimum said, you're wearing a mask, I'm not. Okay, that's fine. But this particular person 
who I, I was wonderful. I, I just, as a aside, I'm glad he was sitting at my table because I know him better and just love him as a man of God. Went out of his way to say, what is it you would like? How can I serve you in this particular thing? So again, I'm, I'm just going to brag on NNU for a while saying that they have established this thing that, that, that the culture there that, that from the administration on down is trying to establish is it's not simply about what we can or can't do, but let's at least inquire with the people around us to see what they would like and we can accommodate up to a reasonable point. I was a recipient of that. I sat back and said, no, that's okay. You guys don't have to wear masks. It's for me. I'm, I'm sensitive, right? But to me, that's the kingdom of God at work in that place. In a place whose seal says, seek first the kingdom of God. Living into the mission of saying, we can make rules about these things, but let's also develop a culture that asks questions about how the other person, that goes above and beyond what what I want or what my freedom says so that I can inquire and how to best love the person around me. That's a wonderful culture. And at least I experienced that around that table. I couldn't tell you what it's like as a student there. It's been a while, but as a trustee at a meeting, it felt like this righteousness that goes beyond what am I allowed to do and instead ask, what would love have me do? And I think that's what Jesus is going for. Right? Not saying, what can I do and what can't I do? Those are okay questions to ask. Those are great starting points. That's why Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I'm not telling you you can do anything you want. But what I'm saying is, we have to go beyond just what can I do or what can't I do to what does love call me to do? What does the character of God formed in me ask me? to do. This goes into all sorts of stuff that Paul will get into about the weaker brother or sister. That Paul will get into about giving up of his own rights for the sake of others. About not pursuing his individual freedom, but rather saying, what is good? What does love ask me to do? How might I serve my brother or sister? Even if I don't believe what they believe. This is the righteousness that that Jesus says is formed in the people of the kingdom of God. Not simply asking, can I do, or can't I do? But what would love in Christ and the Spirit in me call me to do in this? Many of us approach the Sermon on the Mount with fear and trembling. Because we've read it, and we go, I can't do that. In fact, many people will say directly to my face, It's kind of Jesus' ideal, but he doesn't really expect us to live that way. It's too hard. It's uber-Christian stuff. It's glorified stuff. Maybe when we're glorified, we can live that way. And again, recognizing that Jesus likely is speaking in hyperbole in most of these things, at least in this particular section, that, that doesn't dismiss the truth of it. And that doesn't dismiss that this is the life that we are called to allow to be formed within us. Again, not that we can scrupulously keep everything that Jesus said here. I don't think that's the point. The point is that we are a people who says, what would love ask me to do? How can I respond in love as a neighbor to this person? We'll get into next week about loving your enemies. That's even further out there. That's even crazier. 
But how would love compel me to respond to my spouse when I'm not feeling particularly happy towards them on a given day? Dismiss them? Or go, I'm no piece of cake to live with either. How would love call us to to live in a world where we are not taken seriously and where people don't believe what we say? To be radically truthful. I'll take that as an amen from Everett. (laughs) What would love call me to do in these situations? And one of the things that I believe very, very firmly about the scriptures and about Jesus is Jesus will never call us to anything that he does not expect us or empower us to do. Philosophically speaking, this is ought implies can. Saying you ought to do this implies you can do this. Now, we approach the Sermon on the Mount and particularly these things and go, that's hard. I don't know if I can do that. And in one sense, that's true. I can't do that. But I was never meant to do it alone. I was created to be in relationship to God, as were you. If I just go out and try to make myself better, I can succeed up to a point, but not very far. Not to this kind of righteousness. But if you'll recall, it's not by might nor by power, but by the spirit that is in us, that that God gives us. I firmly believe this is why Jesus tells his disciples, don't go and minister yet until you have been empowered by the spirit, because you can't do it. But you weren't meant to do it without the spirit that fills you. I believe when Jesus says you can do, or you should do these things, he means we can by the spirit at work in us. Because it's not about this list of things we have to scrupulously keep. It's not minutiae. It's not micromanaging our ethical lives. It's submitting to God and the kingdom and the spirit at work in us and allowing God to say, this is who you are to be and this is who you can be by my spirit at work in you. Imagine a community that looks like what Jesus describes. To me, it looks a lot like what I think about when I idealize the church. The community of of God acting in these loving ways towards each other and towards the world around them. You might call it salt and light so that the world may see their good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. But the good news is we can by the Spirit of God at work in us. As the worship team comes back up, A thought occurred to me as we were singing this morning. How often I have and other people have come to these verses and said, I can't do that. We were singing a song this morning about resurrection, and the thought occurred to me, if I believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead, why would I ever doubt that he can do this in me? I believe some crazy stuff because I'm a Christian. I believe God can raise someone who was dead for three days back to life. If I believe that, can I also believe that God can form me in a way that looks like his kingdom? I think so. And I hope that's good news to you. I hope that's good news to us. That the the, the message of the kingdom is not try harder. The message of the kingdom is submit to the one who calls you. And the one who calls you will work in you and through you, cooperating with you to make you into this wonderful image of the kingdom 
We'll make you into a light that doesn't want to hide but shine. We'll form you as salt that doesn't want to add a whole bunch of other stuff and so dilute the flavor, but to just be who we are called to be. People who are saved by the grace of God and called to shine forth that grace to the world around us. This is who we are called to be, and this is who we can be by the Spirit at work in us as we surrender to God's work in us.